Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest today is Terry Kawaja, the founder and CEO of Luma Partners, a strategic advisory firm that's right at the intersection of media, marketing, and technology. Terry's been called the John Stewart of investment bankers, and with very good reason. He's overseen over $300 billion worth of transactions. He's also known, at least by me, as the Weird Al Yankovic of investment bankers. Find out why. Listen to my unbelievable, entertaining, energizing conversation with Terry Kawaja. Welcome to the CMO Whisperer Show, my dear friend, Terry Kobasha. Steve, it is awesome to be with you. The pleasure is all mine, dude, and we're going to have a lot of fun. We hung out in Cannes this year at your at your party. It's just, you're, you're, there's characters and then there's Terry Kobasha. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I say that with full you know love and respect in my heart, you know that. All good. It's all good. I, I want to start with a question. That I normally ask those who are in marketing and advertising as opposed to what you're doing. But I really love your opinion on this because it's one of those, to me, it's chicken and the egg kind of question. But let me ask you this. What's the difference, in your opinion, between advertising and marketing? Ah, so in my mental construct, advertising is a subset of marketing. I think of marketing as the function that enables and promotes a business or person, actually, it doesn't have to be a business entity, to further their business goals. Now, usually furthering your business goals means selling a product or a service, but not necessarily. There is marketing that people do just to sort of elevate their persona, build their personal brand. That's marketing, but it doesn't necessarily sell a product or a service, or I suppose in that instance, you are the product. But the point is, marketing looks at the whole equation writ large. So I think marketing done right factors in the consumer experience in terms of how they find out about your product, so product discovery, interaction, lead content. Yes, it may include paid advertising or earned advertising on social or content marketing. All the various channels and techniques to build relationships and drive the relationship between the consumer and someone looking to sell a product or service. Whereas, you know, advertising is a, is a very important critical function or subset of marketing um, that largely, you know, the, the vast majority of the advertising sort of ecosystem is built around paid advertising, which is, you know, it typically was done as a mass market technique to reach potential consumers. So that's how I parse the two. Okay. Very interesting. There's no wrong answer to that, of course. It's just I'd love to get people's thoughts on that. Okay. Luma. 
Now, I know what it says on your site, <laughs> which is the following. Luma is the leading investment bank focused on digital media and marketing. Awesome. What does it mean in layman's terms? And by layman's terms, look at me as the third grader, right? So what does Luma do? So we're an investment bank, which is, which is to say we provide advice to companies in contexts where they're pursuing a potential exit. So we give M&A advice, M&A standing for mergers and acquisitions advice to companies in the media marketing and, and technology sector. So it is largely sell side, which is to say we represent the growth company and helping them find an exit either to a strategic, another you know, company in the industry, or a private equity investor if it's a late stage profitable company. So we are helping in that critical function of when the entrepreneur has you know, had an idea, he's gone to market, He's built some, you know, wrote some code or built a business, got product market fit, got traction, is scaling, is, and they're doing something that is differentiated in the marketplace that is deemed to be desirable, that for a strategic, they're saying, they look at that and say, wow, that capability was clearly ahead of the market. And if we own that capability in our network and, and business, that could accelerate our presence in the market by often years. And so uh, they pursue and potentially look to acquire that business. Now, for the entrepreneur, this is the single biggest decision of their career, right? This is it. This is the, the granddaddy because, you know, in many instances where you've got a positive return on your, on your uh, entrepreneurial venture, this is life-changing economics and you know, for them, it's the single most important decision. And so, you know, you would probably want for the single most important decision of your life or your career, have the advice from someone who's not doing this for the first, second or fifth time, but rather someone who's doing it for the 300th time and has seen every variation so as to advise you on how to optimize the outcomes in terms of the actual transaction terms. And this is sometimes doesn't get as enough attention, maximize the probability. Because if I, Steve, if I were to say to you, if we took all of the interactions where a strategic reaches out or even makes an offer to a growth company, the percentage that actually makes its way through to a closed transaction is in the very low percentile percentages. So in other words, most deals fall apart. And there's a whole variety of reasons why they do. Having an advisor, having someone who's been there, done that, seen all the you know challenges and potential pitfalls can help guide you through to both maximize terms and maximize probability of closure. So that's what we do. We make entrepreneurs filthy rich. <laughs> that's my tag. <text. laughs> In summary. By the way, it's the greatest job in the world because I get to work with almost by definition super smart people, people who, you know, had an idea, built it, you know, did got the execution right, passionate people. So it's great on a personal level so you're helping these people achieve, you know, their goals. Secondly, you know, the whole cycle of entrepreneur, startup, growth, financing, sale to strategic 
implementation in marketplace, then they leave and go off and do it again. Like this, that cycle is what drives innovation in technology. And so, you know, we play a small agency role in that, but I believe a, a very critical one. And I simply have the greatest job in the world. Okay. The show is mostly about marketing and advertising and branding and all that good stuff. And I can see some people going, okay, this is great, but I'm in marketing or I'm a CMO or I'm an advertiser, right? Why would I care what an investment banker thinks about marketing? And I know I wasn't there, but I watched it. You did this amazing presentation at the four A's and it was called chess, not checkers. And when I knew I was going to have you on, I wanted to talk about that presentation is kind of a jumping off point, if you will, because I think it's very, very important. And you even acknowledge in your talk, I think, Terry, up front, where you came on stage and said something like, did they invite the wrong person or something, right? To talk to a group of advertisers and marketers. So to everybody listening who's in marketing, who's in advertising and all the different machinations they're in, why would they care what a Terry Kawaja, an investment banker, thinks about the state of marketing? Good question. And I think I can answer that two ways. So the first way is generic and the second is specific. So in the generic, I mean, think about what I do for my day job. I have to, you know, we are very, you correctly described our sector focus as being at the intersection of media marketing and technology. And that tends to manifest itself in companies that are in the advertising technology and marketing you know, technology and digital content spheres. And that is, to be clear, this is a hyper-focus uh, on our part because that ecosystem is uh, very large, trillion dollars to spend, high growth, very fragmented, highly complex, and extremely dynamic. So those sort of five attributes make it both fascinating and lucrative to focus on, but we can't just show up and say, hey, we know how to you know, negotiate a term sheet. Lots of people know how to negotiate term sheets. We, because of the complexity of the space, have to understand and be able to parse the trends. And when I say parse the trends, identify which trends are fake or, or illusory or not worth spending time on, things like 5G and crypto and, and Web3 metaverse nonsense. And, and the ones that do matter, commerce, media, CTV, you know, performance, identity, all the things that, you know, make a big difference. I, I, and of course, the big daddy, AI. And so we have to parse these trends and think about it. We're doing this from a neutral disposition. I don't sell media. So you reference Chestnut Checkers, where I was invited to speak at a four A's conference. So the, the audience was largely agency professionals. And I had a lot to say about the agency world and what I thought was going to go on there. Who else are they going to get to talk to agencies? If, if, if the requirements are that they, they understand the space, then they're probably selling something to agencies, right? So I had the good fortune of having the mashup of having some sector knowledge and uh, no boss and no filter and no conflicts. I don't sell anything to agencies. I could care less. So, you know, when they first approached me, I said, are you sure you want me to speak? Because 
I kind of don't have any filter and I'm just going to say what I think. And they're like, that is exactly why we want you to speak is because you're not going to pull any punches. I don't do business with agencies. So what do I care whether I offend them or or not? I'm there to basically tell what I believe to be the closest version to objective truth. So that's number one. And number two, and and this one I kind of, as you alluded, take great pride when I hear from the marketplace increasingly, hey, Terry, I bet you're a really good investment maker. I know you're a good investment maker or whatever, but I'd like to hire you like for the marketing. So when when people say, you know, so why should marketers say, I'm a marketer. Sure, I'm an investment banker, but I'm also a marketer. And look, when I launched this business 13 years ago from my, you know, from home in pajamas, you know, and I said, okay, there was at the time in August of 2010, 126, by my count, uh, investment banks that purported to give advice to digital media companies. Well, the world didn't need a 127th one. It just needed a better one or a different one. Or, In other words, you must differentiate. I had to come up with a brand, came up with Luma. I had to make it go global. And, you know, here we are, you know, 13 years later, almost to the day, we're 10 days away from a 13th anniversary. And, and Luma is a global brand and we have, you know, leading market share in the sector. So, and all of that was done with zero, not a dollar, not a, not a dime of paid advertising. So content marketing was, you know, one of the tenants of my broad marketing strategy. And, you know, everyone's familiar with the Lumascapes. They've been downloaded by over 210 countries. I'm pretty sure the only countries in the world from which Lumascapes have not been downloaded are North Korea, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is decidedly undemocratic. And it used to be Syria. There used to be three. And some bastard downloaded the Lumascape in Aleppo in 2020. <laughs> so that's now scratched off the list. But bottom line is, it's a global brand. And we built that via marketing. Well, you have something to shoot for them with, with North Korea and the Democratic well, Republic of Congo. So it's good to have. I may just cold. go and visit the DMZ and just drop a Lumascape just so I can. I was going to say, can you just do an airdrop? Of course, of course. Right. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't put it, you know, I would do that too. Is that, that's technically downloading, right? <laughs> so Lumascapes, great segue. And I was thinking back to when you and I first met and I, I was at Forbes. I know that. And I think I wrote something on one of the Lumascapes and then I interviewed you and you know, the rest is history. No one cares about that, but I want to. I want to make sure we talk about Lumascapes for those who don't know, because they're incredible and they're diverse and they and they're downloaded obviously in a lot of countries. Let's start with what what's what's a Lumascape. Let's start there. So Lumascapes are just maps that help frame the current status of the inter dealings of companies in a particular uh, ecosystem. And by the way, there are. 22 Lumascapes now. So up for, the first one started in 2009. We're now up to 22. They've been viewed and downloaded over 12 million times from over 200 com- countries. So the origin story of it was, it was 2009. There was this mass proliferation of companies in the ecosystem and a function of, you know, availability of venture capital and ease of new company formation. And 
And I, I, you know, I was trying to really just make sense of it for myself. So this, like many things, was accidental that it became a public tool. It was an internal tool that I utilized because I'm a gra- and I'm a graphical person. So w- when mm-hmm. I see things, I can I can make better sense of how they interrelate. So I made a chart to help myself better understand how all these highly proliferating companies worked between an advertiser and a publisher and ultimately the, the consumer or people. And so I started charting this and the first one had 150 logos. By the way, it was called mm-hmm. the Digital Advertising Technology Landscape. And nine months later or a year later when I came up with three more, the mobile advertising technology landscape, the video advertising technology landscape, and the social advertising technology landscape, I had somehow managed to get them to be printed in the Wall Street Journal. It was June the 11th, 2011. And there's PR for you. And I sent them the artwork. And at 7.15 p.m., I had an epiphany. And I called them up and I said, hey, I have new artwork. And they said, well, you got to get it to us in the next 20 minutes. Otherwise, you know, we, we, we can't, you know, for the, for the print run. So I went in, into every one of those four and I changed the name. Instead of digital advertising technology, landscape, I'm like, that's a mouthful. How is that ever going to catch on? I said, landscape, Lumascape. There we go. I'll put my brand in it because all these other banks were copying me. So uh, I called it the display Lumascape, the social Lumascape, the video Lumascape, the search Lumascape, but all, all the, of the various variations and got it in just in time. They printed it the next day and the rest, as they say, is history. Of course, you know, the Lumascapes get utilized really boils down to two purposes. Purpose number one, which is the broadest application, is just as an image to demonstrate how fragmented or complex the ecosystem is. So it, no one's looking at specifics at which box and how they interrelate. They're just looking at the image writ large saying, eh, Look at that. It's a, it's a mess. So that's yeah. the majority use cases of a Lumascape. The second is really both the growth companies and the acquirers look to it to say, hey, we're building this or we have this capability and it would improve our market positioning if we had you know these other capabilities, who's out there. And it's basically a, a way to uh, help with target identification. So there's something there for everyone, basically, right? A little bit, yeah. I mean, you know, look, companies call us all the time and say, hey, by the way, you know, that company was acquired and we now changed the division name. I'm like, sorry, dude, it's for corporate development purposes, not necessarily for product marketing purposes. So, you know, or, or by the way, I get feedback where people say, hey, you have us in the ad network box, but we're really this instead. So please move us there. Or we get it more harsh than that. Dummy, you put us in the wrong box, move us here. And we have a series of questions we ask them. And when we conclude that, no, your business model is exactly where we had you, we tell them, look, we understand that aspirationally you want to be somewhere else. That's called product marketing. And that's, you know, again, aspirational. By all means, take it, download it, annotate it, draw an arrow, do whatever you want. But no, we, Luma, are not going to violate objective credibility and put you somewhere where you don't belong it, when I say belong, meaning your current business model. Right. So people listening up to now who don't know you, right, 
investment banker, I guarantee you one of the perceptions right off the bat is this guy is, is you know, he's buttoned up and he's boring and he doesn't like to have fun and he, you know, forget about having, you know, a sense of humor. Maybe he'll drop in a corny joke here and there. That could not be more untrue when it comes to you. And where I'm going with this is because I know these and I'm a massive fan of these are your parody videos. And I cannot name them all because I would spend the rest of the show doing those. Among my favorite, and I think a lot of people's favorite, is you did a parody of, by the way, I, I recently referred to you as the Weird Al Yankovic, right? <laughs> yes. Of investment banking. That's a compliment. Yeah, exactly. You got to check out his parody parody videos. And I'll put some links when I, when I publish this episode to watch some of these on different platforms. Was you did the Elton John song, I'm Still Standing, and you said, I'm Still Branding. But what Terry does is he doesn't just voice it. Oh, no, no, no. No, he recreates the entire video based upon a given topic. You surely know what it's like. Your brand out budget freezes just like ice. And there's a bold KPI supplied by you. You'll miss big without our tech juice rather than platform schmooze. Don't you know I'm still branding better than I ever did? Acting like a shrewd marketer. What I want to ask first is why? Like, why did you start doing these? What was the initial genesis? So I appreciate appreciate the, your appreciation. I would love to give you a highly rational, logical discourse that supported the premise that this comedic content creation was a highly effective differentiating marketing strategy. And I would not be wrong if I did that. <laughs> that having been said, I'd do it anyways. It's just me. So so I, I like to tell people, uh, you know, I've been an investment banker for 34 years. I know in my bio it says for over 25, but it turns out I've been a comedian for much, much longer. And you know what they say, be authentic, be yourself. I completely concur with that. You are, by the way, more believable, more relatable when you're just yourself. I mean, look at I'm talking to Steve-O. There's no one that is more self-aware than Steve-O. And so I am a big believer in you You be you. You mm -hmm. be you. And that will just – people can smell it, okay? Yep. I mean, people faking it, phoning it in, either being too buttoned up or trying to be funny when they're not. Like, sorry, fake is palpable. And so part of it is just me being me, and it's what I like to do. But I will then go back to my first answer and say, also, it's an extraordinarily effective differentiating tool. Like you just said, investment banker, what comes to mind? Pinstripe suit, buttoned up, boring. Yep. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, you know, if you were to draw a Venn diagram of investment bankers and comedians, I'm pretty sure they only, you know, there's one person where they overlap. Hello. And so, yes, it works for differentiation. It's also, by the way, an incredibly effective communication and storytelling tool because when I have the good fortune of having a stage where I have a microphone and a stage and I have the opportunity to impart some kind of insight or wisdom or some of the message to an audience, which I do not take lightly, I, I, I'm very grateful of these opportunities, I have two challenges. I have to capture the audience's attention 
and their retention. Mm. Two decidedly different and critical challenges. Attention, because just go to a conference. What do you see? People either on their laptops or on their phones. So they're basically they're co-working, right? They're they're doing work, answering email, surfing the net, what have you. And then when someone on stage says something, usually a laugh, and when there's a laugh track associated with it, when people laugh, they make a joke, people look up, they, they, they check things out and back down. So they're basically largely ignoring you, but for instances where you make it impossible for them to ignore you. So attention is my first challenge. And I use a lot of graphics, by the way, I use graphics because because of the way the brain works, and often animated graphics with a sound effect. And so the first time you miss it and everybody else gets it and laughs, you're like, damn, I don't want to miss that anymore. And then the second time you miss it, you're like, that's it. I'm putting my phone down or my laptop down. So I fortunately have a different audience reaction when I step on stage because people are like, they're basically like, you know, rubbing their hands together going, okay, hopefully I'm going to get some subset of insights. Yes, that is critical because otherwise you're just a clown. But I'm also going to be entertained and I'm a big believer that you need to do both inform and entertain. So I get, I capture their attention. And then once I have that, I have to make them remember it. So fine. Great. Congratulations. You got their attention. You made your substantive point. How are they going to remember that? And the, the, the sort of prime example I reference on this is in 2010, May the 3rd, I was at an IAB conference and I wanted, I was making seven points about the, the fate of programmatic. And point number three was, and again, this is May 2010, this is before the invite media and, and ad mailed acquisitions and before Google scaled into the programmatic advertising behemoth that it is today. Uh, my point was Google is coming into ad tech in a big way. And if I said that Google's coming in advertising in a big way, it would go in one ear and out the other. Instead, I said that with the Google logo animating coming in to the Lumascape, in behind all the logos in the Lumascape, you know, giant sized to the soundtrack of Jaws. Dun-na, 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 hmm. dun-na. Yep. And to this day, 13 years later, people come up to me and go, I remember that moment. It struck a chord, they remember it, and I challenge people. Think of the three, top three, you've seen hundreds if not thousands of presentations in your lifetime. Name three that are memorable. You can't, no one can. It's like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, because that's the way the human brain works. I use graphics because we process graphics differently than text, we process it 60 times faster and the memory is much longer. It's stored in a different part of the brain. So people may not remember my exact words, but they remember the animation of the Google logo coming into the Lumiscape and to the sound of the Jaws soundtrack. So, so again, I would love to just say it's just me. It's, I'm just being my authentic self, but there's also science behind this. Uh, in fact, I've written a presentation. I do this whole thing about uh, the use of comedy in business. It's called laughing all the way to the bank because I'm a big believer in this. I want to propagate it. Hopefully, you know, more people take me up on it. At any rate, those are my two answers to that question. 
Yeah, it's uh, nodding my head vociferously. You can't see me. But at the bottom line, at the core of all this, Terry, is emotion, right? You're eliciting emotions in people. And you're tapping into their brains versus, like you said, that, that Jaws analogy of Google was spot on to say, if you just stood there and said those words, no one's remembering this 13 years later. But you used visuals and audio plus your words, plus your personality to bring it all together. And then you tapped into their emotions. That's why they remember it, right? And I want to I wanna talk briefly about emotions. You know, at System One Group, where I work, you know, we measure emotions based on a, a given stimulus, whether it's like a TV commercial, uh, a print ad, a logo, what have you. We, we look at people and consumers, how they respond. I am really interested, what role does emotion play in the role in, in the in the life of an investment banker, and where I'm going with this is, as you're contemplating and looking at a given deal, is it heart versus head, vice versa? Is it facts and data only? Do you trust your gut? Is it all of the above? I'm really interested to see how how emotion, if you separate it or not, into into ultimately making a deal or not. Interesting question. So I am firmly of the view, again, after, you know, 33 plus uh, years of doing this, that if you were to parse the skill set required for someone to, to successfully conduct deal making, you would be surprised by the outcome. They're far more about the soft sciences than they are about the hard sciences. So if I were to do a pie chart, it would be 10% high finance, like advanced corporate finance knowledge, 20% common sense or economics, and 70% psychology. So when you reference emotion, it's psychology, the psychology of the seller, by the way, the motives of the entrepreneur who's been at this for eight years and struggling, and by the way, has got a big mortgage and needs to make payments and kids are going off to school. So all of those factors, you got the VCs, the early ones that got in and have a huge return, the later ones that you know don't have as big a return. So all of these motivations really go to psychology, the psychology of the buyer, not just the person who sponsored the deal at the big strategic, but, but what about the CFO who has to weigh in on the rationale of the valuation? If it's a private equity firm, the sponsoring team, and then the investment committee that has to weigh in objectively and decide. So the massive part of deal making has to do with psychology of all the constituent parts, what motivates them. And if you show me where your incentives lie, I can, I can predict uh, actions. So emotion plays a role in that. We, hopefully, professional advisors take a lot of the emotion out of the decision-making. It can be very emotional. As I mentioned, it's a life-changing moment and and transaction. And so for the founder, you know, a professional advisor, not to be a commercial here, but, you know, can act as a dispassionate, objective, you know, person who's been there a hundred times and can advise their client more objectively and help them see the, the right way forward and, and not get clouded by too much emotion. By the way, emotion in advertising or marketing mm-hmm. plays an enormous role, right? And I think we sometimes lose sight of this. I mean, you know, if I were to describe broadly speaking what's gone on the last 15 years, it is the migration of media and marketing from an art to a science. And and that's good. It's good that we have data and we can be more precise and you know more efficient and but but 
at the end of the day, the thing that really drives efficacy is that is that we that that it worked better. So fine, great. We're not wasting advertising to a bunch of people who are not in market for our product. But it would be really good if we focused on the far more impactful efficacy component, not just efficiency. And that largely, so so if the former efficiency is really about media and data, the latter efficacy, it really boils down to creative. Okay. And we cannot lose sight of how important quality creative is in particular in a technology enabled world where technology is essentially the 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 megaphone for the creative. So the better the creative, the more broad it can go. And to this day, it's a, a, a good advertising is like pornography. You know it when you see it. And by the way, maybe maybe that's the wrong one. It's not when you see it, it's when you feel it. Because yeah. you feel good advertising. And that's where emotion comes to play. And I, I think sometimes we get a little bit lost in the weeds of data and science and technology and software a- ai and ai and, and, yeah. ai but i think actually i am actually of the view that not only does ai improve the efficiency play in media and data but i think ai can materially improve the efficacy of creative so i'm i'm excited for what i believe to be a new era of creative technology let me segue briefly as we uh, approach the end of this Kind of which I knew it would be conversation. Let me look at your career for a second. Who would you say has had the biggest impact on it, and why? Well, let, let me uh, never asked this question before. Let me parse it into two. It would be the it would be the love child of like a Steve Jobs type, so a technology visionary whose words uh, of wisdom basically you know got people to think that anything is possible. Mm-hmm. Right. And the second would be like, I don't know, like Bill Maher there, a, a love child of of Steve Jobs and Bill Maher. And I say Bill Maher, I'm just picking on one particular comedian that yeah. does comedy the way I believe I, I most appreciate comedy, which is intelligent comedy that that actually has an uh, has an effect, has a has an objective. And. So yeah, that's that's my answer. It's a mashup of those two. Is my is my hero? Okay. What would you say you're most proud of in your career? I mean, be, be, okay. You said career, not life, because obviously my my two my two boys. Exactly. Um, yeah, you're, that's why would, would have to be. By the way, it's it's. Here, I'll make a segue here. You know, my my I my two sons are named Lucas and Matthias, and so when I decided I come, had to come up with a brand name, I thought, well, let's see, four letter words like Nike and Coke seem to work well. Luma. Is an acronym mashup for my two sons, Lucas and Matthias. Interesting. Ah, that's... It's also the amount of brightness in a video pixel, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it had contextual relevancy and, of course, the personal uh, connection. Like Let's that. see. What was, the, what was the question again? Well, in your whole career, is there one thing ah. or one that you're most proud of? Well, so, I, I mean, I think made reference to it earlier. The notion that in that in August of 2010, when I quit my job at the investment bank I was working at, because they just didn't get it, with the idea, and by the way, I had not, three months before forming my own firm, I had never thought of forming my own firm. But I'd had my second son, I'd, I was 20 years in my career, and I came to the realization that I, was, that I had another 20 years to go until this kid goes off to college. And so that was the halfway mark of my career, and I decided that, I, if I'm going to 
if I'm at the halfway mark, that's no problem. I enjoy working, but I wanted to do the back half on my terms, not on someone else's. And so formed Luma with, you know, and took on like-minded, you know, partners and, and employees. And I am probably most proud about the fact that we went from zero to the sort of leading position we're at today, kind of just on our own, right? We didn't hire uh, a marketing person or an agency or anything like that. We basically did the day job of the deals, but also did the marketing and and, and we now enjoy a, a, a very differentiated uh, position in the ecosystem. Yep. That's and, and yeah, it speaks for itself. Your success speaks for itself. So one final thing, you can't see this um, listening, but but Terry can see it. Behind me are a bunch of different album covers. And I have a very eclectic taste, if you didn't know. I mean, Terry can see them. I mean, everything from Sinatra to the Stones to the OJs and Earth, Wind and & Fire and Fleetwood Mac and the Village People. Yes, the Village People. Don't judge me. I'm a big music fan. And my all-time favorite song is a song called, called Lean On Me by Bill Withers. I don't know if you're familiar with that song. It's of our sure. of our age. It's from the 70s. And those lyrics have always always resonated with me, and they still do very much as an adult. So not to put you on the spot to pick one, but is there a song or even an album or an artist, something in entertainment in terms of a favorite and, and why? So, so I have an easy answer uh, for this one. In fact, so much so that I made a parody about it and it's Queen, Don't Stop Me Now. Mm. And, and I think that epitomizes... Uh, my feeling about, you know, we, we, we built this and I, I wrote that when it looked like the M&A market was slowing down and everything. And I'm like, you know, to be an entrepreneur and I consider myself, you know, yes, and I'm an advisor, but I'm also my own entrepreneur, you know, founded and, and started a company, no outside capital. So it was bootstrapped. And the, the, the notion of persistence is, is everything uh, in entrepreneurism. You just keep at it. And, and keep adding value and keep doubling down and stay focused. Well, I know when, you know, this sector, advertising technology in particular, has gone out of favor so many times I lost count. You know, in mm. uh, 2015, it was the walled gardens were going to take all the growth. And so, you know, there are screwed. And then there was privacy. And then there was AI. Like Everything has come and gone to be the death of of ad tech and and yet it not only persists it thrives and you know i recall people saying to me a nice run kid but you know you may you better shift you know clean tech or healthcare or s crypto or s cannabis or some other nonsensical not necessarily nonsensical but like some other sector and i'm like i thought about it and my answer was, hell no, I'm doubling down. This space has got a ton of legs. There's all this complexity. There's all these dynamics. And it turns out that was the right call. Well, listen, I, this has been, I knew it would be, because you and I are very much kindred spirits. I knew it was going to be a very free-flowing conversation. I cannot thank you enough, Terry Kawajo, for being my guest on the CMO Whisperer Show. Any final words, I'll give you the floor. So I love talking to marketers. And the reason being is if you, if you think about a Lumascape, it's, it's, you know, hundreds of companies, thousands now of companies, most of them are intermediaries. I am of the view that there are only two principles in the marketing equation. 
There is the consumer that pays the money for the good or service. And there's the marketer that pays to have their good or services marketed to said consumer. Everyone else is an intermediary. Agencies are intermediaries, tech companies, data companies, even publishers. I know they don't like to hear this, but they are intermediaries to help advertisers get to potential consumers. And so I love talking to principals. Most of my life is dealing with intermediaries, but I enjoy talking to principals. Consumers don't aggregate enough for me to be able to have a conversation with them. And so that leaves the marketer, the person, probably the most important one, the ones opening their wallets to fund this entire ecosystem. So to me, having dialogue about trends and challenges and opportunities in the broad marketing ecosystem space is most enjoyable when I have that with the single most important principle, the marketer. Well, on that note, thank you again, Terry, for being my guest on the CMO Whisperer Show. Great to be with you, Steve. Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.